Gresham College presents Why a Primer by Dr Nick Goddard. Thank you, Michael, and, uh, and good afternoon. Um, so, yes, I wrote this, uh, for say, pamphlet and book um, on discount rates, not because I'm deeply expert at creating uh, discounted cash flow models, but because over many years I've been the target audience for them. Um, over that time, I've seen models which were very helpful for supporting business decisions, um, models which seemed to be just reverse engineering common sense, and models which smelled strongly of disingenuous self-interest. So the simple answer to the question in the title of this talk, why a primer, is that I wrote it to help other people who get presented with DCF models to understand when they're useful, when they're not so useful, and when they can be downright dangerous. So having trained as an engineer, my first job was at BP in the 1980s. Uh, BP was going through one of its periodic attempts to diversify, and it had identified advanced aerospace materials as an exciting market. Um, our job was to invent some exotic materials for BP to commercialise. And DCF modelling uh, would have been an excellent starting point for that research. In essence, as we've just been told, a DCF model simply time shifts a set of financial costs and benefits which occur at different times and you bring them all forward to one point so they can be compared side by side. So for each advanced material, BP first needed to incur a string of costs. Uh, that started with inventing the material, that's what we were doing, but it was followed by characterising its properties, uh, developing a manufacturing route, finding customers, building a production plant, and only then would the profits start to flow. For me, sort of young man, it was an exciting job. We were free to study a huge range of materials, so long as they were novel and had amazing properties. And pretty soon, BP had about a dozen new materials ready to start their journey to commercialisation. I began to worry about the cost of taking so many materials over so long a journey. So I did some research, and I concluded it might cost £500 million over 25 years, from the very first laboratory invention of a new material through to its mass adoption. And I reckoned that once you're in full production, each material might contribute perhaps £1 billion to BP's market cap. I was not familiar with DCF analysis at that stage in my career, but my gut feel was that this could never make financial sense. And it is interesting that since that period, there have, so far as I know, been no entirely new civil aerospace materials commercialised. Instead, what we have seen is increases in the market penetration of materials that were existing at that time, like carbon fibre, which had been developed during the Cold War. And that was a period when people took a money-is-no-object approach. But in the event, BP's resolve was tested after much less than 25 years. Diversification went out of fashion, the advanced materials programmes were all abandoned in the mid-1990s. I started a new job evaluating power stations, which had reached the end of their design life. These uh, so-called plant life extension studies end in one of three possible recommendations, run, repair or retire. Run means that despite reaching the end of its design life, the station is actually in better condition than might have been expected, and so it can be switched back on for a few more years. Repair means that it will be cost-effective to make a few repairs and then squeeze out a bit more life. 
and retire means it's not worth repairing. So we make very similar decisions for a motor car, and hence the analogy we've already had. An old car, 10 years old, perhaps worth £1,000. If it passes its MOT, you might run it for another year. If it fails, you might spend £500 on new brakes and put it back on the road. But if you find it needs £2,000 of repairs, twice what it's worth, then obviously you'll scrap it. And decisions like this are another group which are usefully guided by DCF models. But now you need probabilised inputs. I know that I definitely pay £500 for the new brakes, but I also have to include the probable net present value of further repairs which I may have to make later on. And it's very, very hard to be certain about such things, hence probabilisation. Which is why it was very interesting to me, having worked in the sector, uh, to read recently that it suddenly makes complete sense to extend the life of no less than four ageing nuclear power stations, uh, just when there could be further delay in building their replacements. Very convenient. After three years uh, working on plant life extension, I moved to the Ministry of Defence, where my boss was one, Dr Minnelli, uh, in 19... 97, he seconded me to an investment bank. Uh, I joined the bank full-time soon afterwards and worked in the tech sector during the uh, dot-com bubble. And here I encountered some of the more dubious uses of DCF analysis. Uh, you will recall that, in essence, the DCF model is simply a way to time-shift a series of debits and credits so you can add them together and create a single number, the net present value. Now, the scope for doing DCFs badly basically, therefore, comes down to using the wrong discount rate or assuming the wrong debit and credit items. And I feel the Dilbert cartoon has completely stolen my thunder. That says it better than anything else could. And in my experience, the vast majority of bad DCF analyses are bad because they use poor assumptions about the debit and credit items rather than the wrong discount rate. And the dot-com companies provide excellent examples of this. They often had no revenues, let alone any profits, and therefore they had to be valued on the basis of their net present value under a DCF model. And typically, uh, these models started with some top-down revenue projections, and that usually involved buying a market report which said something like, this sector will grow from $100 million today to $20 billion within 15 years, which incidentally is a compound growth rate of over 40% a year. The modeller then assumed the company would win some arbitrary percent of that market, say 10%. And having then spent about an hour working out the revenue line, uh, the modeller would then spend the next few days creating an incredibly detailed model of the company's costs, and at the end of that, they would have the MPV. The key point, of course, is that since these models were dominated by the revenue lines, most of the analysts' time should have been spent testing those assumptions. How accurate were the market reports claiming explosive growth? Historically, such reports have usually been wrong. The markets are typically smaller or slower to develop than predicted. During the tech boom, you could charge investment banks several thousand pounds for a short but bullish market report. You could sell 100 copies, 500,000 pounds you'd get for two months' work. So did the publishers simply tell their city paymasters what they wanted to hear, rather like the rating agencies did during the uh, subprime mortgage crisis? Was a 10% global market share reasonable? 
where there are really only 10 credible companies worldwide competing for this market? Or was it more like 100? Would the market take off five years from now or 15? In the example of making a run, repair or retire decision for your dilapidated car, I pointed out you would need to consider the probability that, having replaced the brakes, you'd find you had to replace the clutch a month later. In order to improve their accuracy and relevance, DCF models cry out for a probabilised approach. And what I mean by probabilised modelling is that if there are, say, two competing technologies, only one of which will secure a $10 billion future market, and for technical reasons, the company that you're backing is in the technology that only has a 30% chance of success, then the total available market should be valued at 3 billion, 30% of 10 billion. What I do not mean is that the analyst should say, this is a $10 billion market, so I've modelled it at 9 billion and 11 billion simply to create some upside and downside scenarios. So why do analysts spend so much time playing with the linkages between their cells and so little thinking about the appropriate value of the dominant inputs? In the long finance report, we noted uh, the well-known principle that in any analysis there's always a risk of garbage in, garbage out, the GIGO principle. Now the nature of mathematical exponents is that what you get with DCF models is actually garbage in, amplified garbage out or Giago. The charitable explanation is that everyone tends to focus on what they're good at. Investment bank analysts generally have no practical industrial experience, so they have no instincts against which to sanity check claims about what will happen in industry. They devote hours to playing with spreadsheets because that is their particular skill. As they say, if the only tool you have is a hammer, then every problem tends to look like a nail. There is, of course, a more sinister explanation. Tricksters know that if you can get someone to focus on what you're doing with one hand, then it makes it easier to pick their pocket with the other. So if you present a complex-looking DCF spreadsheet and you focus on its various financial assumptions and linkages, then people are distracted from questioning the input values which actually dominate the MPV calculation. I said that poor DCF analysis generally comes down to bad input assumptions rather than inappropriate discount rates. However, I have seen some models where discount rates have been used, at least to my mind, inappropriately. After leaving banking, I worked in the renewable energy sector where DCF analysis is used to estimate the so-called levelised cost of energy when it's generated in different ways. In order to appear fair, these... LCOE, levelised cost of energy models, tend to use a standardised discount rate. It's often 10%. Now this is an arbitrary hurdle rate. It is certainly is not the rate of interest being charged or earned in different industrial sectors at the moment. So, to give one example, installing solar panels incurs a clearly defined upfront cost, which in your model will not be discounted at all because it, it happens in year one. And after that, minimal maintenance costs over the next 25 years, during which time electricity will be generated almost for free. The solar farm can probably borrow money at around 5% in today's market, so the 10% discount rate is not reflective of the actual project economics. 
By contrast, a nuclear power station ha- does have upfront costs too, and they in fact can and usually do escalate over a multi-year build period. It has fuel costs over 40 years, which is difficult to predict, and then it has a decommissioning cost incurred, say, 50 years from now, which may be absolutely huge. But it's okay if it is huge, because at a 10% discount rate, each billion pound of decommissioning cost will be valued at just 8.5 million pound today. Except that there's no way you can invest that 8.5 million to obtain a compound 10% post-inflation return for a period of 50 years. So in effect, the 10% discount rate is kicking the can down the road for future generations. And once again, it is not reflective of the actual economics. So side-by-side comparisons that may seem fair because they both apply the 10% discount rate are not actually particularly comparing apples with apples. So to summarise, I'm not knocking DCF. It's an extremely useful tool. However, its accuracy is almost always dominated by the accuracy of the input assumptions rather than the computational linkages between those assumptions. Effort should therefore be concentrated on dealing with that uncertainty, not on ever more elaborate DCF analysis. An over-elaboration of the models is not just a waste of time. It's actually dangerous because of the Giago effect. So to misquote the Bible, look not at the spec in your analyst's DCF spreadsheet when there's a log arrhythmic error in your own underlying assumptions. Thank you for For more information, please go to the Gresham College website, www.gresham.ac.uk.